we are going to uh, hop right back in to Genesis today. Uh, let me get get this slide going. And that's because uh, several of you contacted me this week with questions, and they boiled down to the same question. So I thought we'd address the question today. But I, I, want, I don't want to just answer it. I want to use the question to give you some important items for your rambling backpack. Uh, on any journey through scripture, you're going to need to know what to do when you stub your toe. Uh, like what could go wrong in this picture, right? You know, you need to know what to do when you run into something unexpected. I figured um, several of us feel like this kiddos setting off on this ramble through the Bible. Just kind of, I, the, the, I got a big backpack, doesn't have much in it, and I don't know where I'm going, but so far so good. Um, and, and I understand feeling like that. I have felt like that. But by the end of this series, I want you to feel like this. I want you to be competent, experienced, and well-equipped. So we started um, equipping you even before the class began when I suggested getting a study Bible. That's kind of like getting a bigger, better backpack. Uh, and we put the first tool in your backpack last week when I showed you how to watch for the names of God. So that would help you identify when a passage might be coming from a different source uh, and, and to kind of group those, those parts of the stories together in your mind uh, and, and kind of understand, look for the message within those sections. Um, and, on, and we're going to add to your backpack today. So, um, so what do you do when you stub your toe on a passage that makes no sense? Do you just make up an explanation based on what you want it to be? No, 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 absolutely not. That's really the crux of what I want to get you past here. I think that without the tools that you need to study effectively in the Bible, you have no choice but to kind of make up a story as to you know, how this piece that you don't understand fits. I don't want you to have to do that. I want you to know exactly what steps to take and what order to take them to actually arrive at a good, solid, well-grounded um, conclusion. So we're going to take uh, the hard and important question that you all asked this week, and I'm going to show you how to approach tough passages in this, in this careful way. Here's the question. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, didn't he? Remember what I said in class one about laying your baggage down at the door where you can pick it up on your way out? Not, now would be a good time to do that if you forgot. Just these words, the very question itself, raises all sorts of intense emotions on both sides of this issue. So I wanna to try to approach this as dispassionately as possible. I want, I want to try to stay strictly within the biblical text. So we're gonna approach this by focusing on what is in the text and what is not. Uh, so, that, so that you can yourself draw solid, well-grounded conclusions. So let's start with the first story in chapter one, and then we'll take a look at the account in the second story. As you remember, the story in chapter one was very stylized. It reminds me of an extremely expressive piece of minimalist art 
where the simplest line conveys great meaning. I mean, look at that picture. That's five lines, literally. And not only do we see the face, we see the mood of the face. We can tell a story about that face just by looking at those five lines. This is, this is what that first chapter of Genesis is like. And, and just like with that piece of art, we fill in those spaces in a story like this, in a story like Genesis 1, just like with this artwork, we're supposed to fill it in. But it's a story that is intended to draw from us a response out of our experience. And that actually is the problem, that when we fill in the gaps, we fill them in with our own particular experience. And because it's limited to our experience, we might miss the breadth and scope available to us related to this artwork or this story. For example, when God said, let there be lights to divide the day from the night and to fix the seasons in chapter one, our minds immediately go to the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? But we know this is shorthand for all sorts of heavenly bodies that God created. We know this this spare minimalist statement was meant to encompass all the majestic heavenly bodies, all the forms of light and dark, dust and twilight, the suns, the moons, the amazing myriad of planets and all the galaxies, just infinite variety, infinite beauty. Creativity beyond our imagining lives within that small phrase. And what about the creation of the seas and the dry land? We completely understand that this meant ev and everything in between, the marshes, the lakes, the rivers, the mountains, uh, the lush tropical rainforests. The minimalist words are meant as brackets, kind of parentheses, if you will, to enclose and encompass God's incredible explosion of creativity. We instinctively understand this manner of storytelling. It is a way to tell a story. And to say that God created the fowl of the air in no way does justice, just that phrase, and he created the fowl of the air. And look, what kind of gorgeous flamboyant words God must have spoken to create these creatures in particular. Do you get the idea? And in the plant and animal kingdom, expressions of sexuality cross and combined all genders as, as we use the word gender. And if, if you didn't know that, you should Google it. It's really easy to Google. And, and even with all the same sex and bisex and heterosexuality going on in the entirely innocent plant and animal kingdom, doing only what they were created to do because they can do no other, they are clearly quite fruitful and multiply just fine. So why would we assume that when it came to the creation of humans, that God would limit his creativity in any way, either in appearance or in sexuality or in gender? Why would God suddenly limit himself to black or white, one or the other? That makes no sense at all in the context of this biblical story itself, nor in the witness of the, 
of the vast and diverse creation in which we live. It is not consistent with the plant kingdom. It is not consistent with the animal kingdom. And we can certainly believe what we choose to believe, but we can't hang a narrow view of sexuality or gender on this particular story. The text simply won't support it. So what about the story in chapter two? As we saw last week, that seems to be an entirely different story. If you went back to study it this week, you may have even noticed that in chapter one, humans were the last creation. Whereas in chapter two, humans were created first before any plants or animals. Chapter two is a different story that is trying to communicate a different message. So I have a pop quiz for you. Where did God look for a mate for Adam? This is in the last part of, of the story of chapter two. Well, there weren't any other people, so the first option can't be the answer. He made Eve, right? Nope. God looked for a mate for Adam among the animals first. Look at verses 18 and 19 in chapter two. I'm flipping, flipping over to them. God says it's not good for man to be alone and he would make someone for him. And what did God then proceed to make? He made the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and he brought them to Adam one by one. And verse 20 says, but there was no suitable helper found for Adam. Let that sink in for a minute. Do you think God did this because God was ignorant and didn't know that mating with the animals didn't work or wouldn't work? No, of course not. When you encounter something like this in your study of scripture, something that makes no sense, the first thing to do, here's step one, and you need to like, I'll add this to the study guide later um, when, I, when I work on it this week, I'll add these steps so you don't have to like scribble them down frantically. But um, the first thing to do, and you should do them in this order, is check the footnotes of your study Bible to see if the passage is questionable. That's why having a good study Bible is so important. In this case, there's no textual evidence that this was a late addition or an amendment. So we've done that step. I did that step for you. You can always go back and do it yourself. The next thing is to look at the actual words research them in the original language. There are really easy to use tools available to you for free. Um, and in one class soon, I'll, I'll, we'll just do a class and I'll walk you through some of those tools so that you can start doing this on your own. But for now, today, we don't have time. And so I'm just gonna tell you, there's no alternative meanings. There's no wiggle room in the translation here, God was definitely looking for a mate for Adam among the animals. So the next thing to do, the step three, is to pull back and check the wider context within the story itself. This is not hopping to some other part of the Bible yet. This is just looking at the story itself. Look at it as a whole. What is the overall point of the story? Why is this story in the Bible at all? These are not the only um, three steps to do, but they're the first three to take every time. And this is a great story to practice on because we already have a good contrast with the story in chapter one. 
we already know from the work you did last week that God is earthier, closer in the version in chapter two. So you start by looking at the topic sentence of the passage that you're in. So in this story, you have to back up all the way to verse seven, where the, you find the topic sentence and it says, then the Lord God fashioned the human hummus from the soil. I love this translation. It reflects the sound play in the words that is in the original Hebrew, the human hummus from the soil. It, uh, we miss a whole lot in the translation into English, partly because it's done by committee and it's homogenized and, and they just take all the life and the color out when they translate it. I, I'm not really sure why, but they do. Um, and so it's, it's, I find it well worth the money to invest in other translations by experts whose goal in the translation is to retain the rhythm and the feel and the sound and the rhyming and stuff like that of the uh, original, original, um, language. And uh, this particular translation I love. It's by Robert Alter uh, in the Hebrew Vi Bible Volume 1. He, he just published this last year in 2019. Uh, this is from the Five Books of Moses. Uh, I've got three of his, of his volumes, the, fir the first three that he did. Uh, it was published out of Norton in New York City. And he does such a great job leaving the gutsiness of the original Hebrew in there. And, and so the Lord God fashioned the human hummus from the soil. That, that word fashioned is different than any of the words that the chapter one author used. This in the chapter two, God, God didn't create the human by speaking him into existence. He fashioned him. And this word is the same kind of word that is used for when a potter forms a vessel doing hands-on kind of messy work. And when you did your breakout sessions last week, you reported noticing how chap in chapter two, God had a relationship with Adam. Close. It was conversational. It was very intimate. And this verse shows this in a microcosm. Chapter two is about how close we are to God and to the earth. The word Adam is pronounced Adam in Hebrew, and it is just the Hebrew word for human. Adam was not a proper name as much as just a characteristic. We are Adam, human, from Adama, soil. This whole chapter is about relationship. You guys figured that out very quickly last week. And God breathed into the human his own breath. This is about our intimate relationship with God. And it goes on to explain how close we are to the animals, so close that we have power over them. We name them. And finally, we can understand why in this story, God looks for a mate for the human among the animals. It's not about the science or the sex or procreation at all. It is to emphasize the closeness of our relationship to the animals. We are integrally related to the earth. 
We are integrally related to God and we are integrally related to the animals. And that brings us to the final section about the creation of Eve. The story of Eve being built, um, Robert Alter has a note in there that that word is an architectural word. Um, she is built from Adam's rib. Um, that is not intended to be silent science. It's intended to demonstrate the intimacy of the relationship. Look at the Hebrew. This one shall be called woman. In Hebrew, the word is isha, because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew is ish, intimate, named the same, related. This short poem here in verse 23 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That poem is showing the integral closeness of man and woman. So close, they have names virtually the same, Ish and Isha. So close, they are closer than even a parent to a child. And so from this text, considering the context of the whole story and the search for a mate among the animals, you can only conclude that the author's point is not that it is not good for, that his point is that it's not good for a human to be alone, but that we have a need for intimate, close relationship with God, with the plant and animal kingdom and with each other. This is not a story of scientific historic, historic accuracy. It's not about gender at all, or even the ability to have procreative sex. It's all about relationship. And that should resonate in your spirit, in your spirit if you've been wrestling with this question, that should lift a weight off of you. We are hardwired to need relationship intimate, close relationship. And like I said, you can always pick up your deeply held beliefs at the door. I understand. I really do. This can take years to adjust to. Um, it, can, it can be very hard to even get wrap our minds around the possibility that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 had absolutely nothing to say about the spectrum of human sexuality gender and relationship, you know, um, but I want you to at least have these tools and have this space to come back to, to think carefully about where those beliefs are coming from and how much basis they may or may not have in good biblical scholarship. So, okay, enough of this uncomfortable, mind-bending hard work. Let's do something fun. I have a new word for you. The word is etiology. It's the story of how something came to be. And a an etiology can be historically accurate or mythological. And it's very often the blending of the two. The, the older the story is, the, the more blended and embellished it becomes. Um, and most of the stories in the first 11 chapters of Genesis are etiologies. Here's a list of them. They kind of skip through, you know, you skip through the Bible, uh, skip through the first 11 chapters. And uh, I want you to do this. I've, I've, I've pulled out the etiologies for you here. 
uh, on this slide and also it, this list is in your study guide. Um, so in your breakout group, I want you to pick one or two of the etiologies from this list in the study guide and together make a note of all the things that particular story explains. The list, um, uh, there's a link in the chat that I put out there um, and, and once I stop sharing my screen, you'll be able to get back to that. So we've, we've already done chapter one and two. Those were explanations, etiologies of how the earth came to be, how plants and animals came to be, how humans came to be. So it's, it's just a simple statement like that. Just find what it is in the story that is an explanation of how that particular phenomenon came to be. So see if you can identify what some of the other etiologies explain. And we'll get back together in uh, 15 minutes to compare notes. You took us just as we were going to talk about Woody's other question about the 120 years. Oh. We didn't get there. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question about 120 years? Well, the, the question was simply, um, why is that sentence stuck in the middle of, of these, uh, these four verses? Um, verses one and two seem to be talking about the sons of men and the daughters of uh, sons of God and the daughters of men, as is verse four. But then verse three says, my spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal. His days will be limited or will be 120 years. That doesn't seem to fit with the verses one, two, and four. Woody, right. Woody, we, we just discussed that. And um, my summary was the sons of God married for beauty and God shortened mankind's lives to 120 years because they were corrupt. Mankind continues to be corrupt because before that, all the longevity was extremely long. And then after this period of time, and we were talking about the fact that they were marrying for beauty, probably physical beauty, not inward beauty and the corruption that displeased God and that he shortened the lifetime. Now I could be way off base. Yeah, well, this is, this is great. I love this discussion. Did anybody else um, pick that part, pick that one? We did in our group, and we were looking at those verses, um, and, um, you know, the whole question of who are the Nephilim, who are the sons of God, came up, um, and the, the, the issue that you noticed, the steady decline in lifespan, from the beginning of the story to the end of the readings that we did for today, that lives are getting shorter and shorter and shorter but it's not an instant thing right that happened um and then the the question of of the wickedness um that it's talking about possibly uh, in all of my footnotes that i've read um partly that that the sons of god that were mentioned here were descendants of of um, the, those who remained um, faithful to God and the daughters of humans were perhaps of the line descendants of, of Cain 
and there was like a contamination of the gene pool or that the sons of God were perhaps fallen angels or angels that had come down to earth and mated with women, um, creating these heroes and warriors of old. Yeah, and, and so this is a really weird story. Um, and so I want to address it and then move to some of the others, but I think that you two, you have all picked out the two main bits that needed to be picked out. And uh, I think that your observation, that if you kind of drew a graph of the um, lifespans in Genesis, it would, it would look like this. It would go from, you know, really, really, really long to um, much, much shorter and closer to what we would experience nowadays, even uh, as a maximums. Um, and that it is perhaps all of these stories in Genesis from 1 to 11, which comprise a particular body of etiologies that they are collectively intending to explain why the, the lifespan went down. And that the thread running through all of them is wickedness, wickedness, sin, wickedness, you know, that, that moving away from God decreases our lifespan is the bottom line here. And um, I also want to point out just that when you have just this really bizarre story in the middle, like this one is, um, make a note of what it has, what the etiology is. And in this particular case, this particular story is in there to tell us how the Nephilim came to be and that they were kind of, you know, half angel or whatever sons of God was, you know, half divine and half human, as is common in lots of stories of that culture of that time. There, you know, there were lots of stories like this floating around in the ancient world. This particular one names the Nephilim, and that is for a reason. That is because the Nephilim are going to play a big role later on in some of the stories later in Genesis. These are a lot of times it's it's um, translated men of renown. These are giants. This is the etiology of how giants came to be. And you remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath is one of the Nephilim. He is in that lineage, and Genesis tells us about that later. So that's where we're going with that. So who picked another story? Who picked a different story? Did you all do the Nephilim? No, we we actually did the um, Genesis three with the, the Adam and Eve and the apple and the the, the snake and uh, the separation from God, um, and that how the relationship was damaged but not broken because even when he kicked them out, he still took care of them by giving them clothes. Right. And ensuring that they, you know, knew how to take care of themselves. Right. Right. Did some, did other people look at that one? What were your observations on Genesis 3? Uh, yeah, this is raw scale. Hi, Rob. I have to admit, I did a lot of talking there. Um, I tried to explain. <laughs> what a shock. I tried to, yeah. And I don't know if I'm right. You can correct me or wrong, but the way I looked at the mechanics, um, that um, a sinless man, Jesus, came from God and a woman. Uh, he put, God put 
enmity between Satan and the woman. But a sinless man came from God and a woman, and that man would be a savior of Adam. And, you know, of course, woman is a, a derivation of Adam, and, and she is saved also from that sinless man. Do those mechanics sound right? Well, I, I'm trying to stay strictly in the Genesis text right now. What we're going to do is when okay. we get to the New Testament, park that question till we get to the New Testament, because there is okay. a, some, some um, passages in the New Testament that directly talk about that. We're going to, by the time we get to the New Testament, we're going to have the, the base and understanding of the Old Testament we need, we need in order to really understand the New Testament. So, um, but yeah, but yeah, basically I think that the, um, the deal is, and the message that you hear, this is another consistent message through all of these archaeologies is that when we do sin, it is of our own choosing. It's something we have complete control over, um, according to these, to these stories. I'm not making a theological statement. I'm just making a statement as to what you see in these stories. And I think Renee was spot on by noticing that even though God was really mad that they had stomped on the blessing he had made for them and had, um, and, and that there were consequences to that, that he still met them where they were and tried to um, provide everything they needed. And we actually, um, we actually skipped, I didn't put in the story of Cain and Abel because it's not really an etiology as much per se, um, but I wanna point out that the very next story is in Genesis chapter four where uh, Cain murders his brother Abel and Cain is a farmer and he was the first murderer. And I, I, number one, I wanna point out these boys married women and there weren't any other people in the world according to these stories. So just saying, these are not supposed to be all encompassing stories. They're pulled out and they're being told for a reason. And in this reason, we see how God deals with the first murderer. It's number one, God knows that it happened. Number two, God does not kill Cain. God actually just banishes Cain to wander and not be a farmer anymore, to wander around, maybe learning from his mistakes. I don't know why. I don't know what, what the purpose of that was. I'm sure there was a purpose. But that Cain was afraid the other people in the world, yet again, all this other population were going to kill him. They were going to if he wandered away from his farmland, he was in a dangerous spot. And so God put what is commonly called the mark of Cain on Cain. You hear that phrase a lot. And that mark was not a, a curse. That mark was a, a blessing. It was a mark of belonging. It was, this man belongs to me. Do not hurt him. This is how God dealt with the first murderer. Wow. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Um, something that I took from that, and I wrote this down while they were talking, um, in the story of Adam and Eve um, and the first sin and all that, the fact that um, temporarily they lost fellowship with God, 
but they didn't lose their relationship with God. Yeah, they definitely, they definitely lost that he's walking in the garden with them every night part, right? And that's a, that's a real trap. It wasn't because he didn't come down to walk with them. He came, he knew they had already sinned. He came down to walk with them. They hid. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's like, that's how we all are. You know, we're like the baby that puts a, a, a towel over his head and thinks his mommy can't see him anymore, you know? And, uh, and God, God is there. And the, another thing I want to point out is that there is nowhere in here original sin. Nothing about original sin is in any of these stories anywhere. And that concept of original sin, which is where you're born, you know, it, sinful and corrupt and you have to give your life to God or, you know, be saved or all that, not in there. That whole idea of original sin was invented 400 years after Christ by Augustine, St. Augustine, one of the quote church fathers during a period of time where the men were getting together in, in the Mediterranean region and trying to decide what orthodox Christianity was going to be. And Augustine was big in that. He made some, some mistakes and he made some good things. I think he, I think he got this particular one wrong. What else did you, did somebody pick uh, uh, one of the other stories? Yeah, we, we did. No, no, we did. Uh, sorry, okay. I was too long, too long to get to my unmute button. Uh, we chose chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 about Noah's sons. Um, and, and I was going to have um, Diane's husband talk because he did such a nice thing, but I see he's not there anymore. So um, I will attempt to uh, say what we did. Uh, Oh, what was interesting is that from the rest of the earth come, of the people of the earth come Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And become, because Ham uh, makes fun of his dad and uh, Noah, because he's drunk and lying naked, um, Noah then curses Ham and his descendants, the Canaanites, to always be slaves. And then he he extends the territory of Japheth and he lets uh, the people, the Japheth live in Shem's tent. So obviously Shem and Japheth have to share resources with one another, yet while maintaining a um, <clears throat> caste system of uh, lord and slave. And uh, my question was that uh, when Noah cursed him. Did he corrupt God's plan um, because um, he created something, a caste system or a system that wasn't something that God intended? Let me, let me address this because this is a really, really important story that people skip over all the time. I'm so glad you looked at this one. If you recall when the Israelites ultimately settle, the land that God gives them, the promised land, is the land of Canaan. It's the land of the Canaanites. And this etiology is the justification for why the Canaanites were second-class citizens and why they should be wiped completely out. This is the root of that being okay. 
it is very similar to what we are seeing today and have experienced in the United States of the justification of enslaving black people and that making it okay to do all these horrible things to them later on. So we're reading an ancient book in which these people had to have some justification for why it was okay to commit genocide later. Um, and this was the justification, was this story. They have a worldview, and you'll see it repeated over and over and over again, of the sin of the ancestor, of all the descendants after that ancestor being culpable for that sin. Not just a little bit, all of them, all of the descendants. So it feels very barbaric, but it, it, this is the world they lived in. That's how they thought. So we have to kind of strip the culture away and try to, again, get back to what is being said about God in these stories. Um, but I wanted you to particularly notice this story because of that. Does that make sense? That etiology makes sense. I was very confused by this uh, section because um, even though Ham was the one that apparently did the bad thing, um, God didn't, at least according to the NIV, God did not curse Ham. He cursed Ham's son, Canaan. So that the etiology of why Canaan and the Canaanites had to be cursed, that makes sense. Yes. Exactly. I thought they were cursed by Noah. He, he I'm sorry. Was. He was. Yes, Noah, I'm sorry, not by God, but by Noah. Yes, okay. exactly. Exactly. All right, did anybody do the flood? Did anybody do Noah's Ark? I just had a question about that. I don't really understand what we're trying to say that this says about God. We don't the know story that. We don't ah, know. We'll find that out later. This, yes, this doesn't say anything about God, but you have to remember that this was their view of Canaan when we get to later stories about Canaan. Okay, thanks. Sure. Did anybody do the flood? I did it on my own. Okay, that works. It's pretty remedial. It's um, God regretted his creation and Noah found favor with God. The recount of the flood. Oh, I just did recount of the flood. <laughs> and then the commandment to go forth and multiply and not to kill because mankind is in God's image. That was um, a standout to me. And then also God's unconditional covenant not to destroy the earth by catastrophe of nature by the sign of the rainbow. Like I said, remedial. Nope, that's exactly right. I mean, clearly, there must have been an actual devastating flood in, Meso in the Mesopotamian area, across that area, uh, because there are lots of flood stories like this that exist outside of the Bible. One of the oldest and most famous ones, which predates the Genesis version by a lot, um, by like thousands of a thousand years, the um, that story you probably have heard of, the Epic of Gilgamesh, 
and there are many, many others. You can Google it and, and read all about it. But in this Bible story, God decides to wipe out humankind because of our perverseness. And according to verse five, every thought of our hearts was inclined to evil all the time. But God didn't want to re destroy the one righteous man he found, Noah and his family, nor did he want to destroy all of the animals. Um, and the story explains how man and animals were preserved by God out of mercy. And notice, if you read that story, notice that Noah didn't have to go gather the animals. God caused the animals to come to him in this story, and that God himself was the one who sealed shut the door of the ark and made sure it was safe. And the point is not whether any of this is historically accurate. The point is to show us what is important to God, that drawing near to God, righteousness, which is being in right relationship, is important, and that no matter what the circumstance, God will take care of all of our needs. He, he just wants to bless us. You should be seeing this message loud and clear from Adam and Eve all the way through here to Noah here near the end of the etiologies. Um, did you notice, did anybody notice that before the flood, humans and animals were all presented as vegetarians? If you go back to those first stories of, uh, in chapters one and two, we were given plants to eat. After the flood, God gave us meat to eat as well, but made a point of saying, don't eat, um, don't eat meat that has its blood still in it because blood is where life is. Don't eat it while it's still alive. And we're going to see echoes of that when we get to the New Testament later on. And I, also, I have a question, Gail. Sure. Sorry. Um, two things that, that popped into my head when I was reading that story was, uh, number one, why also the animals were destroyed, the bulk of the animals were destroyed in the flood? Was it just that logistically, if, the humans were going to be wiped out by a flood, the animals were going to go too. Um, and number two, it seems like there are actually at least two different storytellers in the narration <laughs> of Noah, because in one place it talks about two of every kind of animal, and then later it says, uh, but the clean animals, you're going to have seven, male and female, and I was thinking, okay, is that seven pairs, because they're going to need them for either sacrifice or eating. If they're clean animals, they would be edible animals. Um, or was it, you know, three pair plus one? <laughs> right. Exactly. That's, I want to tell you about just that. the mystical number seven. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, so first off, why only two of each kind or seven of each kind or whatever? I don't, I don't know. Um, I, it, I can think of two explanations. One, there's not enough room in, in an ark for all of them. And number two, and number two is because of our close relationship, intimate relationship with the animals, what we do affects them. We see that now, right? But um, as to your second question, I actually have a visual aid for you. Um, there is a Remember when we, we looked in, uh, in chapters one and two, and I told you about how, um, you know, clearly the writer of chapter one was a different writer than the writer of chapter two. We can see them using different 
they're just different, so different. Um, and, and the writer of chapter one is identified as the peace source. He's called the peace source because he's the priestly source. And, and um, the writer of chapter two is identified as uh, the J source, which stands for the J in the Tetragrammaton. Okay, the four letter name of God, because he uses that with the word God all the time. Or he uses it by itself. And, and you'll see that if you went through and marked your, your God references throughout the first 11 chapters, you will see um, in the story of Noah, they're jumbled up. You'll see a little bit that has the God only, and then a little bit that has the Tetragrammaton only. And that is because the, the editor, the, sometimes called the redactor, it's just another word for editor, the editor didn't keep the stories of the two sources separate like he did in chapter one and chapter two. He had to keep them separate in chapter one and chapter two. They were too different. But when he got to the flood story, he interleaved the P version and the J version. And you can really see it in the text. And so I have, I have a book that I just love. It's, a, it's, it's the Bible with Sources Revealed by um, Friedman. So cool because it's color coded uh, and it's just these first parts, you know, through Deuteronomy. And I don't know if you can see the color differences, but he's got the P part in blue and the J part in green. And so you can actually go through and it's a fun thing to do by yourself. You're equipped now to do that is to go through the story of the flood and, and, and kind of pull all the verses that are, clearly using the word God alone out together, and then all the verses that are using the Tetragrammaton out together, and then begin reading them as a story, and any of the remaining verses that you can't really tell, pull them into one or the other as needed to make the narrative flow, knowing that the P source, the one that uses God, is a priestly source. So he would have been worried about the sacrifices. He would have been, he would have had the seven of this. You got to have seven. When you see words pure and impure, that's P source, okay? And when you divide them up, you will see that the P source, I can't remember which one it is, but one, I'm pretty sure it's P source, has the flood lasting like six months. And the J source says it's 40 days, you know? And the way that they were interleaved here when the stories were edited together and just stitched together, it makes it sound like, well, it lasted 180 days and then he sat and let it dry for 40, you know? And that's how we normally understand this. But when you begin to parse out these um, different authors, it, it, each story is, you can tell um, by itself, a complete beginning to end story of the flood is fascinating. So we're out of time. I hate that we're out of time. Let me look real quick and see if there was anything else I wanted to. Um, a quick question. Sure. Do you think that the reason the vegetarianism became omnivore um, after the flood was due to the fact that there wasn't so much vegetation available because they had to wait until things dried up and plants started growing again? Oh, wow. That never occurred to me, but that makes perfect sense makes perfect sense. Um, I, that's great because I always wondered, well, why now? Why all of a sudden are we carnivores? So that's very cool. Um, and if you guys, uh, I would encourage you to finish the study guide on your own. Um, it doesn't sound like anybody did the Tower of Babel. But oh, we did. 
Oh, good. Okay. Okay. Um, good. It's short. There's there's two things that stand out to me. Um, one is Gem Genesis. 11 verse 7 um, is a notation that it's let us go down and confuse the tongues of something to that um, genre. But up in Genesis 3, 22, it also refers to being like us. So that stuck out to me. But then the rest of Genesis um, 11, 1 through 9, we, we came up with, Mankind reaches for the heavens and God is not pleased. God sees mankind is trying to make a name for themselves and God ends the attempt. Yeah. So all that, this is a theme that should um, click something in your head. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like what happened to Eve when she was being tempted and the serpent said to her, Oh, you won't die. You'll just be more like God. And what she was trying to do, her rationale was, I will be more like God if I do this. Men, this is a really fundamental quote, sin that we all participate in, is trying to be God in our own little ways. And we think it's okay, and it's not okay. It's never okay. We are not intended to have power over each other in that manner. We are, we are not, power is not for us. God's power is sufficient for us. And we need to let God use his power himself without us manipulating it. And this is a really, really big thing in Genesis. And it's important to remember because it's going to have a really big impact on one of the major figures in Genesis later on. Um, and so it is justifying an action because it will make you more like God is about the worst thing you can do. You want to never get in between God and his people. And that's why I'm trying so hard in these lessons to give you the tools so you can do this yourself and I can get out of the way because God, God's spirit will speak to you when you study these scriptures.